This rare cast is made possible by Global Genes, a leading education and advocacy organization that serves and promotes the needs of patients and families touched by rare and genetic diseases. Since 2009, Global Genes has been building awareness, developing patient-focused education and advocacy tools, and funding patient care programs and critical research. To learn more, go to globalgenes.org. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The promise of gene therapy has rare disease patients not only contemplating the potential of new treatments, but ones that can free them from chronic therapies and potentially provide cures. Sangamo Therapeutics, long pursuing its proprietary gene editing technology, is suddenly moving into the clinic with four experimental therapies, including treatments for hemophilia A, hemophilia B, MPS1, and MPS2. The company is currently enrolling three trials and expects to begin enrollment on a fourth trial later this month. We spoke to Sandy McRae, president and CEO of Sangamo, about the diseases it's targeting, the company's unique approach to gene therapy, and its strategies for moving its therapies through clinical development and to the market. Sandy, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk about hemophilia, Sangamo's gene therapy approach, and where it stands today. Let's start with hemophilia itself. You're actually developing gene therapies for both hemophilia A and hemophilia B. For listeners who may not be familiar with these diseases, what are they, how rare are they, and and what's the prognosis for someone who has these conditions, and, and what are their therapeutic options today? So hemophilia A and B is uh, are diseases of leaving. Um, they have been known for some time, but it's only since the advent of uh, recombinant factors and the purification effect that patients have been able to be treated for them. Without them, they would have bleeds into their joints, into their muscles, and when they were injured, that led to consequences of, of simple as bruising, but as as significant as as fatal fatal bleeds. And, and in the old days, patients with hemophilia would die in their 20s and 30s. Uh, famously, he, uh, Queen Victoria's family line has uh, hemophilia in it, and, and, and uh, that's the one that, that most people associate it with. But uh, through the 70s, I would have guessed that the, the various factors started to be used. It, it was a revolution for these patients. Um, they then went through what was what was a truly unexpected uh, consequence of this when um, many of the factors were being uh, were carriers of HIV because the the factor was pooled and there was a large number of hemophilia patients who tragically died from HIV because of the the treatment for their disease. Now it's a much more safe. Uh, environment, there are both recombinant factors and longer-lasting versions of. And now we're on we're on the tipping point where we're moving from treating the patient either on a daily or weekly basis 
to trying to find solutions that they can get a treatment that lasts them for a long term, hopefully for life. This was all put into perspective for us when we had some hemophilia patients came and joined us, and these were two young men because it's a disease of men. Um, happens in about hemophilia A, happens in about one in 5,000 men, and hemophilia B is about four or five times less, less frequent. Um, and so these young men um, came to see us, and they, they came with their mothers because it's a disease which is, is a disease that affects the whole family. And, and from very early on, when the diagnosis happens, these mothers have to look after small children and find access to veins and give them factors and think about their lifestyle. And so it really is an important disease uh, that affects the whole family. So anything that we could come up with that gives them a long-standing solution, uh, in our view, a, a, a solution for life, would be wonderful to this community. Well, you're developing therapies that carry the promise of, of freeing patients from relying on regular injections of the clotting factor that they're unable to produce. Is this an off-the-shelf therapy or something that has to be uniquely prepared for each patient? No, what we're, what we're producing, that's a good question, what we're producing would be something that would be uh, pertinent for every patient with, with hemophilia. Um, they would receive it via an injection into a vein where we would use adeno-associated virus, which is a simple virus that is a carrier for genetic material, which then goes into the liver and affects the liver and puts the copy of the gene into the patient's own liver. And there's two ways that you can do that. In the more um, traditional gene therapy, the, the new gene is put in the nucleus of the cell but, but is kept in a, in a circular piece of episomal DNA, which means it isn't stitched into the patient's own genome. It doesn't become part of their DNA code. The alternative version, which is something that Sangamore alone are developing, is where we um, use our zinc finger technology. And that's a very, a very uh, elegant way to do it. And what that does is zinc fingers, you need to think of them like two hands that are uh, they're translated into proteins within the cell in the patient. They recognize a piece of DNA, they hold on to it, and make a cut between the two fists. I'm holding my two fists together here, which is hard, I'm sure, to see on the podcast. And they make a cut, and the new gene is dropped into that space within the genome. So we're not actually um, correcting the defect in the gene um, throughout the body, we're putting a new copy of the gene into a safe place in the liver within the albumin gene. And albumin, we've got lots of it in our body and we, we, we've got far more than we need. So putting this copy of the, the hemophilia gene within the liver allows the albumin promoter to produce copies of the gene, uh, of the hemophilia gene, and replace what was missing in the patient. So it's really genomic editing rather than gene editing. Well, we've heard a lot about the gene editing technology, CRISPR. You're using your own proprietary zinc finger nucleases. Is this technology a differentiator? Is it just a matter of using a different tool to get to a, a specific result? That's a really good question. And um, yeah, I'm a physician. I hope that in 10, 20 years, there'll be several ways to do gene editing and that it will be applied across a range of diseases. And um, CRISPR's fascinating and, and the excitement around it has helped all of us in the gene editing field to move forward our technologies. 
However, I would say that we've been developing our technologies, which is based on on transcription factors that exist within the body itself, rather than the bacterial ways that, that CRISPR is based on, for about 20 years. We already have, have administered it to patients in, in vitro for T-cells, and we're now moving into doing it in vivo, where we'll use it in, um, in patients and pitch a new gene into their liver. We believe that it's a better technology. Um, we believe it's a human-derived rather than bacterial-derived. We believe it can edit more nucleotides within the genome. We feel all nucleotides in the genome are available to us to edit, whereas CRISPR is very limited because of the guide sequences they use to find where they're going to make the cut. We believe we can do it with greater efficiency. We believe we have less off-targets, we're more specific. And we've already shown that we can do it at clinical scale. It's one thing to do these experiments in a, in a test tube. It's another thing to, to expand it to the clinical scale that we needed to treat patients. Now, if I was if I was doing an experiment in a laboratory in you know I was doing my PhD in postdoc, which happened a long time ago, I would probably take a CRISPR kit from the shelf and use that because it's it's easy to use for very quick um, laboratory experiments. What we are doing here is not a laboratory experiment. It's something that will eventually become a medicine. And that whole process between the idea to having something you can put into a patient takes two years for everyone. And that, whether it takes a day or, or 10 days in our case to, to do the, the actual editing, is neither here nor there in the, in the overall um, theme of things. And what's most important patient is that it is effective, accurate, and has, is very specific. One of the challenges, hemophilia, one of the challenges of developing a gene therapy for hemophilia is the relative size of the gene to the vector. Do, yeah. do you avoid the problem of the payload being bigger than the vector with your technology? Well, we, we like everyone else, we use, we use a, a, a section of the hemophilia A gene that is sufficiently small 4.5 kilobases, I believe it is, that fits in the 4.7 kilobase payload carrying capability of AAB. Um, hemophilia B is a lot smaller, and so to molecular biologists and engineers, it's an easier thing to to um, to make a construct of. Whereas hemophilia A has been a harder thing for people to do because of the size. You then, you not only have to put the gene in, you need to think about a promoter that makes it specific for the liver. You then look at the gene itself and you can do things to the gene that doesn't alter the protein it produces, but makes it more effectively transcribed when it gets into the human. And put all together, there was a, a number of things that this very talented uh, scientist we have here, a woman called Bridget Riley, did to, to make our version of the hemophilia A gene much more effective than the others. So we've only tested ours in mice, as everyone else, as everyone does. And then the next stage for everyone as you develop these is you test it in non-human primates. And in non-human primates, our um, construct is more effective and is able to be given at lower doses, which is very encouraging. Now, I want, I want to be very clear to, to your listeners. Until we go into humans, you won't be able to know how it compares with the 
the competition, but we're very encouraged by what we've seen in non-human primates. Most drug developers, I think, would say that the, the challenge of gene therapy is delivery. Would, would you agree with that? And is the fact that the target here is the liver mitigates that to some extent? Absolutely. I think, I think you're, you're, you're spot on there. So we believe we've, we have a, a, a great understanding for gene editing. Like I no longer talk about it in molecular biology. I talk about it as molecular engineering. We, it's that level of understanding of the atomic interaction between our zinc fingers and the DNA. What will make the biggest difference in this field is not the editing now, it is the delivery. At the moment, we use a series of adeno-associated viruses that have tropism, which is, is, it refers to their ability to recognize a certain kind of cell within the body. And most of them at the moment, their by far dominant tropism is for the liver. So if you inject them, most things go to the liver. Most things go to the liver as first pass. But they also transfect the liver far more favorably than other tissues. And therefore, all of the diseases that all of the gene therapy and gene editing people are doing are, are going to two tissues. One is the liver because of the virus's homing mechanism. And the other one, which a few companies, not us, are doing is the eye because you can direct it, inject it directly into the eye. Very soon, I believe, there'll be, there'll be other ways to deliver these vectors, but also the, the gene editing components themselves. And the one I, I think is most likely to come next is to the, the brain, to the CNS, because there are now viruses that are being developed that will go, that are CNS tropic. Now, whether those are given perhaps directly into the brain as, a, as an injection, which is something that's done in, in some severe forms of brain disease, or into the, the spinal column, a bit like getting a lumbar puncture, or when um, um, uh, it's called intrathecally, that, that you could deliver it directly into the cerebrospinal fluid that, that circulates over the brain. But we believe that eventually the most important thing to do is to be able to inject it intravenously and have a have a virus or a delivery technology that will go through the, the, the blood, cross the blood-brain barrier, and transfect the cells in the brain. If you can do that, the number of diseases, important diseases, I'm thinking some of the hereditary brain diseases, spinocerebellar diseases, um, frontotemporal dementias, Parkinson's, even Alzheimer's, would really be um, amenable to treatment with the technology we've got. Because our technology can either edit, so it can either delete a gene, or it can make edit, as you would with a document, change letters in a gene. But it can also control the transcription of the gene. So the genes within your body are produce um, RNA transcripts and then produce protein. That The amount of, of um, activity of the gene is controlled by their transcription and a series of transcription facts. The zinc fingers were originally developed or discovered from uh, a family of transcription factors. And so we can control the amount of gene that is produced. And we, we showed some very interesting data earlier this year where we altered the transcription of a gene called tau, which is a, uh, a gene that has been highly associated with Alzheimer's disease. And perhaps by turning this down one day in the future, we may be able to reduce the production of tau and reduce the, the burden of Alzheimer's disease.
you're enrolling uh, patients in hemophilia B trial right now. What, what's the status of that, and what is the endpoint of the trial? How long should it run? So we have we are. It's a very exciting time for Sandville. We have three clinical trials open and a fourth one that will open in this month. Um, and the the one that opened first was in hemophilia B. We want to emphasize the importance of caution here and, and doing this prudently. These are patients who are, are being given a medicine, if, if we can look in these as medicines, that will be with them for the rest of their life. And therefore, we need to choose the patients very carefully, make sure that the benefit to them outweighs any risk, known and unknown, and risks that will be with them for, for the rest of their life. And so the, the right way to start these trials is in adults. The dream of Sangamo and the patient support groups is eventually we'll move into pediatrics and so we'll be able to avoid these patients ever having to suffer from the disease. Um, the trial recruits very few patients, so it's perhaps six, nine, twelve patients in each of the four trials should give us the answer. And what we're measuring in these trials is levels of the enzyme or factor in the blood. Because once the editing happens, the new gene is put in the liver, the gene is transcribed, the protein is released into the blood, and hopefully enough of it will be produced to, to mean that the patient no longer has to take um, injections on a daily basis. You talk about the concern for safety. I have heard some drug developers argue against using gene therapy for hemophilia on the basis that existing therapies are adequate and dosing regimens are improving while there's a risk of an immune response that could render infused clotting factors ineffective. Is that correct? Is that a concern? So I'm, so I'm a drug developer. I spent 20 years with DSK and Takeda and um and my last job was responsible for releasing medicines and saying they were safe and that the benefit risk was correct. And, and I think their caution is an important discussion for us all to have. We believe that gene editing and gene therapy is sufficiently safe and effective to be used for diseases where the burden of illness is significant. So... Um, one could imagine that we will start, we being society, the field of people that are into gene editing and gene therapy, in partnership with the regulatory authorities, the patient support groups and patients themselves, will start in diseases where the burden of illness is, is life-changing. So MPS and 1 and 2, Hunters and Hurdlers Syndrome, those patients uh, have shortened lives and the life that they have are greatly impacted by the disease. So for them, the benefit compared to any risk known or uh, unknown at this point is really clear. For hemophilia patients, in the most severe patients, their life is dominated by their illness. And we, we bring these patients into the when we talk to them and their parents. And the parents, the mothers talk very vividly of holding down an infant of one or two-year-old to try and find intravenous access as they worry about them bleeding to death. And then there's the economic burden on these patients. A severe hemophiliac will be spending, we will be will be costing society two to four hundred thousand dollars a year. And one of the ones that came in to visit us 
their medical bill was about $3 million a year. And then if you speak to the boys themselves, they talk about their life being dominated by their illness. Now, the ones, the, the Haemophilia Society and support groups do a wonderful job of trying to make these children and then young adults' life as normal as possible, trying to make the disease something in the background rather than in the front of their life. But we need to be sure that the diseases we're applying, gene editing, gene therapy to, are important diseases. I have a dream that maybe 10, 20, 50 years from now, we will be able to treat more and more diseases with and correct them for life. Because if this is successful, and the molecular biology is so clear, if it is successful, it means that you will you will be able to either correct the gene def- defect itself or do things in the genome that will allow you to have a solution that will avoid you being impacted by the disease at all. I know my colleagues in, uh, that look after small molecules or antibodies or the more traditional ways, forms of medicine would uh, would also embrace that. And I think they just want to make sure that the gene therapy and gene editing community, which is less experience of understanding benefit risk and less experience of um, the, our responsibility to patients, just want to make sure they understand the importance of that. Well, there's also a business risk here. This is gene therapy that several companies are targeting to develop. Is this going to be a case where the first one across the line wins, or can we anticipate multiple gene therapies for hemophilia? And what will be the implications of that? Uh, great question. Um, I don't know. I don't think any of us know yet because this is such a new field. Um for something like hemophilia A, there's clearly room for multiple providers. Um, each provider will, will have a gene therapy with a with a known efficacy, a known um, uh, risk of um, liver inflammation when the when the dose is given. And um, but I but I think we need to think of it slightly different. It isn't. Uh, it will have to be thought of as a, as a whole package that if if I'm being treated with gene therapy, it's how do I get it? How is it presented to me? What's the efficacy? What's the long-term follow-up? And so I think it's a, it's a much more complicated relationship with the provider than simply taking a pill once a day. Um, there, there are very big players in this field, and several, most of these players, and I, I'm sure you saw our, our deal with Pfizer, already have more traditional gene, uh, hemophilia treatment. And so that switch from the traditional hemophilia treatment to the new form is one that will be a really interesting business model to follow. We will all start with the most severe patients, but as we gain experience, we may even move into less severe patients. You made reference to your programs in Hunter and Hurler disease. These are MPS1 and MPS2 lysosomal storage disorders that today are treated with enzyme replacement therapies. One challenge with enzyme replacement therapies for these diseases is the enzymes don't cross the blood-brain barrier, so they don't abate CNS complications. Do you know anything about whether a gene therapy approach would address the CNS issues? Great question, because it's the one that the parents ask all the time. I mean, they, they want the very best for their children. And 
you can imagine if, if there's neurocognitive implications, how distressing that is both um, um, the problem with enzyme replacement therapy, as I understand it, is 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 even simpler. It's that once the once the child goes into the infusion centre, um, the the half life of these medicines is so short that even by the time that they're leaving the the, the centre and by the time they get home, the levels are very low in the blood and. By the time they go for the next infusion a week or two weeks later, it's almost unmeasurable. So it's unclear whether the, the, these are able to cross the blood-brain barrier at all, or it's simply that they're, they don't hang around in the blood for long enough at a high enough concentration to drive passage across the blood-brain barrier. We've done work with our gene editing where we put the appropriate enzyme in the liver of mice and then measure it in the blood. And we can measure it in the brain, and we can measure reduction in the, um, in the, in the bio, biochemical side effects of the disease in the brain. And then when we do um, neurocognitive testing in mice, so this is putting them in a maze and showing how quickly they learn how to escape, we find that our treatment in the liver or gene editing in the liver with the new en with the new enzyme somehow resolves the neurocognitive delays that the the mice show when they emit, when you model the disease. So, so to be clear, these are mice, and mice and mazes have have misled pharmaceutical companies for many years. But this this data looks good. It looks like the um, the the enzyme is is being sufficiently expressed to sufficiently cross the blood-brain barrier to sufficiently prevent the neurocognitive decay. They were very clear with the um, with the patients in the support groups of this and with our analysts that this is mouse data and translating that into humans is is a big leap. But one of the things we'll be doing even in the first trials we do, which is in adults, is is starting to measure neurocognitive assessments on them. And when we, when we eventually get the, the children, which is our final goal, we will also be doing um, neurocognitive assessments there. There are other companies which are doing something where they, they inject some of, of the enzyme into the, into the cerebral spinal fluid. It's unclear whether that will work. Again, it's a very traumatic thing for the young children. So this is an important part for us all to understand. As you mentioned, you've partnered your hemophilia A gene therapy with Pfizer. Much of your earlier pipeline is partnered, but the MPS1, MPS2, and, and hemophilia B programs are not partnered at this time. Is your strategy to enter partnerships for these therapies as well? That's a great question, and it's, it's one that all companies our size think about because we all want to, to own an internal pipeline and move it forward and, and, and kind of build a company around a pipeline or a, a disease area. And Angamo's blessing and its challenge is that we have both a, a platform that can be applied to almost any disease and the desire to have a focused pipeline. So at the moment, our, our business strategy is that we will move forward in the rarer diseases. So that's really around MPS 1 and 2. And behind that is the is Fabry's disease, which we've got some very interesting data on. And and look at 
diseases that are sufficiently bite-sized and tractable for a company of our size to develop and to um, make available to the patients in the community. Things like Hemophilia A is a much more competitive space with lots of big companies and a much more traditional way of marketing. And so that was why we felt that we would benefit from the know-how and muscle and, and passion for Pfizer, that Pfizer has around this area. We were delighted when Pfizer got involved. They're, they're, you know, they're a huge company, but they're, they, they also shared similar values with us around the importance of the patient, the importance of high science, and about doing the clinical trial as well. And so, yes, we got $70 million up front, which will help fund our other research and move our, our, our own pipeline through. But what we did get is a partner that will help us make our hemophilia A available to patients as soon as possible. If I look at the rest of our pipeline, the stuff we've got around tau, tau, Alzheimer's, that area is very complicated and it's huge clinical trials and needs the biology, translational medicine, and know-how of a partner to take that forward. I'm, I'm not going to start running an Alzheimer's trial. And so we're, we're in the process of speaking to a number of companies who are very interested following the Pfizer deal. And then the third part of, the third part of what we do is, is around oncology. And again, that's one where we're looking to outsource. So if I was going to parse this out and how I think about it, where there's a therapeutic area with competing franchises, significant investment required, or requires special disease area expertise or complementary assets. I see that as something that we would partner. If it's something which is we could develop ourselves and with breakthrough potential, I think we will keep that ourselves. I look on all of our assets, whether Pfizer's pushing it forward or we're pushing it forward, as all of our children, and therefore uh, it's just different ways to do it. And I think it reflects the modern development world of, of um, partnering an ecosystem, sharing with, with those who know best how to do it. Sandy McRae, President and CEO of Sangamo. Sandy, thanks so much for your time today. My, my pleasure. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org. You can subscribe to the Rarecast RSS feed through raredaily.org or through SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or your preferred podcast manager. The Rarecast is produced for Global Genes by the Levine Media Group. You can also find our podcast, The Bio Report, on these popular podcast sites. Our theme music is composed by Jonah Levine and performed by the Jonah Levine Collective. We'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note at danny at levinemediagroup.com.